Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q&Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at c-u-e-a-n-d-r-e-v-i-e-w.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday, 18th of August, 2021. Afghanistan. Starmer Savage's Refugee Plan and Attacks Rab Over Beach Holiday by Hannah Roger, Westminster Correspondent. Pierre Stammer has berated the UK's government's planned resettlement scheme for Afghan refugees. During the debate in the Commons, the Labour leader said the Prime Minister's judgment over the situation has been appalling and challenged Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab for remaining on holiday while Kabul fell. He questioned the preparation of the government for the unfolding crisis and asked where the Home Office had drawn its figures from on the number of refugees it is preparing to accept from the country. Last night it was announced that as many as 20,000 refugees are expected to come to the UK after the Taliban takeover, with 5,000 coming within a year. Mr Starmer questioned whether the figure had been plucked out of thin air and added the gains through 20 years of sacrifice hang precariously. Women and girls fear for their liberty. Afghan civilians are holding onto the undercarriage of NATO aircraft, literally clinging to the departing hope, and we face new threats to our security and an appalling humanitarian crisis. He added, The scale of the refugee crisis requires an international response, but we must lead it, and lead with a resettlement programme that meets the scale of the challenge. The scheme must be generous and welcoming. If it's not, we know the consequences. We know the consequences now. Violent reprisals in Afghanistan. People practically playing into the arms of human traffickers. We know this is what will happen for people risking and losing their lives on unsafe journeys, including across the English Channel. Green MP Caroline Lucas said the situation in Afghanistan should represent a turning point for the UK's new plan for immigration. She said this disaster must mark a turning point for our failed asylum system, in particular getting rid of the so-called hostile environment and the Nationality and the Borders Bill under which a woman fleeing the Taliban with her children on a boat across the Channel would be criminalised. Continuing, Mr Starmer turned to the actions of the Foreign Secretary, who was on holiday in a luxury Cyprus hotel until Sunday night, after the Taliban had taken control of Kabul. Mr Stammer said, the British government were wrong and complacent. The Prime Minister was wrong and complacent. When he wasn't rewriting history, the Prime Minister was displaying the same appalling judgment and complacency. Last week, the response of the British ambassador to the Taliban arriving at the gates of Kabul was to personally process the paperwork for those that needed to flee. He is still there and we thank him. The Prime Minister's response to the Taliban arriving at the gates of Kabul was to go on holiday. No sense of the gravity of the situation, no leadership to drive international effort evacuation. 
He addressed Mr. Rabb, saying, The Foreign Secretary shakes his head now, but he stayed on holiday while our mission in Afghanistan was disintegrating. He didn't even speak to the ambassadors in the region as Kabul fell to the Taliban. You cannot coordinate an international response from the beach. This article was written by Hannah Rogers. Recorded from the Herald on the 18th of August 2021. From the Sports Section. Martin Boyle pens Hibs extension to put end to Aberdeen transfer interest by Mark Hendry. Martin Boyle has been rewarded for his fine form with a new deal at Hibs, ending all speculation linking him with a move to Aberdeen. The winger signed his extension to keep him at Easter Road until 2024 and immediately told of his love for the club. It comes amid reports that Stephen Glass's Dons had offered £500,000 for the Australian internationalist. The Easter Road Club were adamant they would not be selling their prized asset and set about tying him down for the long term. And they were finally able to confirm the news this afternoon. Boyle said upon the announcement, It's a great feeling to agree a new deal at a football club that means a lot to me and my family. I think everyone can see how much I'm enjoying it here and how my own game is benefiting from that. As a team we're always looking to improve and that's the key for me. Everyone can see the desire from the club, the players and the management staff to progress and challenge for trophies in European football. That excites me and that's where I want to be. If we keep working hard, then hopefully we'll be able to create more highs than the ones we've already had. Hibs boss Jack Ross added, Last season his number for goals and assists were outstanding and he started exactly the same this season as well. You can tell he's feeling good and he's right at it. For me, he's as good as anyone in this country in his position and long may it continue because he's a major asset for us. He's also a really good character, brings energy to the club every day and works really hard for the team. He's a player of real quality and a really good person for us to have at this football club. I've had long conversations with our new CEO, Ben Kensel, about building something here and he has been hugely supportive and aiming to keep our best players at the club. That article was by Mark Hendry. From the Health Scotland dated Wednesday 18th August 2021 from the Voices section. The middle-aged bread is not biologically inevitable. An article by Vicky Allen, Senior Futures Writer. There's a familiar story many of us midlifers like to tell. That spare tyre around the midriff, the love handles, the pounds that just seem to magically appear, we'll say are all just middle-aged spread, a biological phenomenon which clearly relates to a slowing metabolism. One day we woke up unable to fit into the clothes of our younger years, and it wasn't our fault. It was our bodies did it to us. But a recent paper entitled Daily Energy Expenditure Throughout the Human Life Course suggests this is a bit of a porky, or form of self-denial. Their data showed metabolism does not slow down in midlife. That doesn't happen till we are in our 60s. In fact, they stay pretty much on a level. So it's clear there is something else to blame. But what is it? Don't we already know what it is? It's the slow creep, the regular culprits. Too many calories, too little exercise. They are certainly part of the formula. Most experts will say it's eating too much, not doing enough exercise, living a life that's digital rather than physical, the sedentary lifestyle. A 
And don't we already know what the answers are? Do your 10,000 steps. Cut down on alcohol. Avoid processed and refined foods. Walk to the shops. Do resistance training. Yeah, yeah. But bear in mind that exercise on its own in midlife is only going to have very limited impact. The chief way of shifting that spare tyre is to eat less. John Speakman, Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Aberdeen and one of the paper's senior authors, has said, At any age you can only lose weight by eating less calories. Weight maintenance is easier if you are more active, but doing more physical activity to cause weight loss seems fairly useless. Come on, I've been living on salad these past few years. I'm sure I don't eat any more than I used to. There must be something else. Well, Speakman has suggested we might be able to blame our guts. He said, It could be that as we go through middle age, our guts become better at digesting the food we eat. While we may be eating the same amount of food, our guts are absorbing more of it, so we are in a slight positive energy balance. Also, this study only investigated metabolic rate. There may be other changes, hormonal for instance, in menopausal women, that affect our distribution of fat and weight. You can't surely be saying that it should be quite possible to stay the same weight in our 50s as we were in our 20s. Pretty much. Speakman says, Many people don't gain weight in midlife, and I think it's clear that it doesn't inevitably have to happen. This article was by Vicky Allen, Senior Features Writer. The Herald Business Section, Wednesday the 18th of August 2021. Firth of 4th Net Zero Hub Key for Scotland by Brian Donnelly. A net zero hub centred on the Firth of Forth is key to achieving the country's climate goals, it is claimed in a new study. Research from global natural resources consultancy Wood Mackenzie found that the development of net zero hubs around the UK is a central strand of the strategy towards achieving net zero by 2050. It said Scotland, which has a net zero target for 2045, could advance its ambitions by establishing a net zero hub on the Firth of Forth. Malcolm Forbes Cable, Wood Mackenzie Vice President Consulting, said the country had a running start due to the success of the offshore wind sector. The Firth of Forth area is Scotland's major industrial cluster, he said. The area is responsible for more than 10% of Scotland's emissions but is critical to the Scottish economy. Establishing a net zero hub on the Firth of Forth would complement the development of Scotland's net zero roadmap and become a key element of national efforts to deliver net zero. Charles Hammond, Group Chief Executive at Forth Ports, said the report's conclusions are timely and incisive. He said it aims to create a green port hub that would provide energy jobs and help tackle deprivation around port sites. He said, This is already underway in Leith, where we have announced a privately financed £40 million investment in a renewable energy hub at the port. Wood Mackenzie said the Firth of Forth encapsulates the challenges the UK and Scotland face to decarbonise, but also the opportunities that will emerge in a low-carbon economy. 
Mr. Forbes Cable said Scottish industry currently emits about 10.7 million tonnes of CO2 per year, and the Firth of Forth accounts for about 10% of Scotland's total emissions. At the same time, the industries in the region host the skills necessary to address the technical and commercial challenges faced in delivering net zero. This article was written by Brian Donnelly. The Herald Business Section Tuesday the 17th of August 2021 Longboats Norway Oil Exploration Move Approved by Brian Donnelly A North Sea-focused company set up by a team of energy entrepreneurs has hailed the approval of the acquisition of stakes in a series of exploration licenses with $1 billion plus prospects. The Norwegian Ministry of Petroleum and Energy has approved the acquisitions by Longboat Energy, led by the team behind Faro Petroleum, which was acquired by Dino for £640 million in 2019. The drilling of Egyptian Vulture Prospect, scheduled to start later this month, will be the first of an anticipated seven-well exploration program by Longboat over the next 18 months on the Norwegian continental shelf. The drilling program will be targeting net mean prospective resource potential of 104 million barrels of oil equivalent with an additional 220 million barrels of oil equivalent of upside and follow-on prospectivity. The program is said to have a potential to create a net asset value of over a billion dollars based on the precedent. The farm-in deals constitute a reverse takeover transaction under AIM rules and ordinary shares of Longboat will be cancelled from trading on the London Stock Exchange on completion of the arrangement with readmission expected shortly after that. On completion of the reverse takeover, the company will cease to be investing company for the purposes of the AIM rules and instead will become an operating company. Helge Hammer, Longboat Chief Executive, said we're pleased to announce this milestone for Longboat which sees us join a select group of companies holding oil and gas assets on the Norwegian continental shelf and will enable us to complete the farming transactions as planned. We are looking forward to spudding the first well in our multi-well program. This article was written by Brian Donnelly. Recorded from the Herald on the 19th of August 2021. From the sports section. Rangers complete deal for Huddersfield midfielder Joanna Bakuna by Christopher Jack. Rangers have completed the signing of midfielder Wihano Bakuna from Huddersfield. Boss Steven Gerrard revealed on Wednesday that he was on the verge of adding to his central ranks, and Bakuna has now agreed a deal that will bring him to Glasgow as he follows Fashion Sakala and John Lundstrom in joining Gerrard's squad. The 24-year-old was in the final months of his contract with Huddersfield, and Rangers have clinched a move ahead of their Europa League clash with Alish Kurt. Gerard confirmed his desire to make another move in the transfer market at his pre-match press conference. He said, well yeah, I feel that is what we're missing. That's the reason why I've just confirmed we are looking to strengthen in that area. We have a couple of players who are capable of dropping down and playing as hybrids if you like, but it is an area where last year, come the end of the season, with the volume of games, we felt we were a bit short at times. We did ask Glenn Kamara, Stephen Davis and Joe Aroba to go above and beyond and they did that. But I don't want to be as vulnerable as I was at the back end of the season. 
and I want to have options and do like two players in each position. And if we can get this sighting that we're looking at over the line in the coming days, then I'll be really satisfied with the engine room. Gerard has now landed his man after Bukuna agreed to join the Light Blues and end his time in England after three seasons. That article was by Christopher Jack. Herald Scotland, recorded on Thursday 19th of August 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Amazon's Lord of the Rings. Come to Scotland, come to Rivendell. By Vicky Allen, Senior Features Writer. You don't have to struggle in Scotland to find yourself in a location that makes you think that add a few orcs, hobbits or elves and you can imagine yourself in a scene from Lord of the Rings. A childhood fan of the books but not obsessed enough to become an adult nerd, I've often found myself thinking this. Hence, following the news last week that Amazon was moving the filming of its new television adaptation of the J.R.R. Tolkien trilogy, I find myself ready prepared with some suggestions for the location scouts. Welcome to Middle Earth. A few of us are well aware that we have been living here for some time. Okay, throw me one. Let's start with Hobbiton, the Shire, home of the Hobbits. Isn't that more English rolling hills than Scottish moors? We do have some gentle rolling hills and also cute bridges of the type which is a feature in Tolkien's Hobbiton. Among my favourites are Pack Horse Bridge at Carr Bridge in the Cairngorms and the Fairy Bridge at Glen Crerin. Plus, on a recent trip to Harris, I found myself ogling over the numerous hobbit houses, or as some describe them, Hebridean earth houses, built into the ground, with their stony fronts and hilly roofs. You'd only have to CGI out their enormous glass windows to instantly create a residence at Bag End. In fact, even black houses have a distinctly hobbity feel. But you're surely not also saying come to Scotland, come to Mordor. Well, on a bleak day, walking in the mist and dusk around the old man of store on the Kerrang in Skye, you could imagine you'd arrived at Tolkien's bleak and jagged landscape of Mordor, the land and base of evil Sauron. Plus, we have plenty of stand-ins for Mount Doom, admittedly without the belching smoke and lava, which include, for instance, Ben Stack, which rises up in a dramatic conic shape from the, and also Glamag, the northernmost red coolin in Skye. Or that we are home to anything so desolate as the dead marshes. Actually, it's hard to imagine a landscape that better fits the bill than the flow country of Caithness. These reeking marshes which feature in the two towers are the site of the ancient battlefield of Daggerland. And peering into them, Frodo sees the faces of dead warriors. In fact, Tolkien said that these mires owe something to northern France after the Battle of the Somme. What about Rivendell? Tolkien is said to have based this on Lauterbrunnen in Switzerland. He even created a painting of the scene, and we in Scotland have nothing with quite that combination of rocky cliffs, high mountains and dramatic falls. What do you think CGI is for? The Nevis Gorge need only be your canvas. By Vicky Allen, Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 20th of August 2021. Arts and Entertainments Deluged in Florence, Rosemary Goring reviews Angels of Mud by Vanessa Nicholson. By Rosemary Goring, columnist. Angels of Mud, Vanessa Nicholson, Harbour, £12, review by Rosemary Goring. In a cafe in Florence, hung with photos of cars floating upside down through the streets, I overheard an American ask the waiter, does this happen every year? If it did, the city would have disappeared long ago. The Great Flood of 1966 has become legend, by far the worst inundation Florence has endured in centuries. On November 4, the Arno broke its banks and rushed through the streets. Two-thirds of the city was submerged, more than a hundred people drowned, and thousands of priceless artworks and books were ruined. People from across the world rushed to help, earning themselves the title, 
Angeli Del Fango, or Angels of Mud, the title of art historian and memoirist Vanessa Nicholson's debut novel. Few subjects lend themselves better to fiction, and the flood forms the climax of Nicholson's tale. Raised between Florence and London, she draws in her background to create a story that ricochets between both. In so doing, she paints a portrait of very different cultures and societies in this period. London, believe it or not, becomes off better. The novel's central character, Cara, is caught up in the drama of the flood. An 18-year-old from Clerkenwell, she has taken a temporary job in the city in the hope of forgetting an unrequited schoolgirl passion. Her Italian name, meaning blessed, goes to the heart of the story, which lies in her mother's unhappy marriage. After her birth, writes Nicholson, Mary peered into her daughter's crumpled face like an archaeologist studying a find. Eventually what binds her mother, Mary, and Cara too to this country is explained. Angels of Mud focuses mainly on Mary and Cara, but Nicholson also encompasses their forebears and descendants. There's enough material here for several novels, as it stretches back into the early 20th century's London Irish immigrants, their Italian counterparts in Little Italy, and into our own times. In many ways, it is a traditional family saga, layering each generation's experiences beneath the next. Above all, it is about a mother's hope that her daughter will have a better life, with more opportunities and romance than she has had. Marrying young to a man whose family had died in the Blitz, Mary yearned for more. On her wedding day, she thinks, it was just the beginning, but it felt like the end. She dreads the same fate afflicting her daughter and encourages her to go to Florence and discover a wider world. What happens there is an eye-opener for the naive Cara. It is a magnificent city, but for a woman who wants a taste of independence, it can be hypocritical and suffocating. The bones of this story are good, the writing less so. Many novelists have written about Florence, from E.M. Forster to Dan Brown. Nicholson has now joined the ranks, although closer to Brown than Forster. Describing dreary post-war London or luminous Florence, she is at her most assured. The Duomo was like a large terracotta umbrella. It gave a focus, like the point of a painting from which the eye can move around, but to which it constantly returns. The characters who fill the story are vividly drawn, yet they feel like ciphers. It is as if the novel is an eightsome reel between recognisable types. There is Mary's husband, the lame bookseller, unable to satisfy his wife, the handsome school friend, uninterested in girls, the kindly Italian neighbour who cooks delicious lasagna even during rationing, the chic but standoffish Florentine employer, quicker to criticise than to praise. These flaws alone would not ruin the book, but Nicholson lacks the skill to handle the welter of material she imposes on herself. The prose is dull, at times leaden, and the dialogue painfully flat and functional. All the elements are here for a rip-roaring tale, but the author has neither the imagination nor the literary style to bring it off. Even the Great Flood, one of the most momentous events in Florence's history, loses its power in a cliché-ridden plot. Like the rest of Nicholson's cast, its purpose is to convey a message, and a very hackneyed one at that. By Rosemary Goring
from the Herald Scotland, Monday the 23rd of August 2021, an article first published on Sunday the 22nd of August, Rangers, Stephen Gerrard's get real warning to Everton over joke Nathan Patterson bid, by Christopher Jack, senior Rangers writer. Stephen Gerrard has warned Everton they will need to get real if they are to land Nathan Patterson after blasting their joke £5 million offer for the Rangers right back. Patterson has emerged as a target for new Goodison Park manager Rafa Benitez in the closing stages of the summer transfer window and the Premier League side made their move in recent days. It is understood that Rangers have rebuffed an initial seven-finger approach for this 19-year-old and it remains to be seen whether the Toffees will now return to the negotiating table to test the champion's resolve. Patterson rose to prominence in the second half of last season as he deputised for captain James Tavernier and his fine form was enough to earn him a place in the Scotland squad for the European Championships. But he didn't get off the bench at the Global Energy Stadium as Rangers returned to winning ways in the Premiership with victory over Ross County. You carry on with the jokes, £5 million, wow, Gerard said when asked about Everton's interest in Patterson after the 4-2 success on Sunday. Look, I've only just been told about this. It hasn't been brought to my attention by anyone who is above me at the club. I'll ask the question when I go back to the, on the bus, but if you're going to talk about Nathan Patterson, you need to get real. £5 million is, I don't know, that's definitely come out of a joke route, surely. I don't make the decisions in terms of when the right numbers are hit. All the players have got a prize. We've said this so many times. We want to keep all our best players, especially our homegrown talent and our local ones. There's a big future here for him, but he's got to be patient and he'll get his game time in minutes. We're delighted with Nathan. He's not someone we're looking to move on, but every single person has got a number. But let me tell you now, £5 million is so far away it's unreal. Goals from Joe Aribo, Conor Goldson, Alfredo Morelos and Scott Arfield were enough to secure a deserved win for Rangers as a Harry Clark strike and a Jordan White penalty proved in vain for the Staggies. Rangers now turned their attentions to the Europa League clash with Ash Alaskert on Thursday night before the first old firm clash of the campaign against Celtic next weekend. Gerard said, It was much more like us both in and out of possession. I'm a lot happier today. As you can see quite clearly what we are trying to do. We are trying to be more organised at times and we are still trying to fine tune that. We are still waiting to have a full squad and be fully settled so we will get better. I thought we showed a lot of quality today and we created a lot. James Tavernier had a good chance at the end and it could have been one or two more. Going forward, we look really dangerous. We've come away from home and got three important points, which is the main thing. And that piece is by Christopher Jack. From the Herald, Monday the 23rd of August 2021, from the sports section. Ange Ball has Celtic fans in thrall, but will it work against Rangers at Ibrox? By Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer. There is much that Andrew Postelicoglu must achieve in the months ahead if he is to vindicate his somewhat left-field appointment as Celtic manager this summer. The man who occupies the Parkhead dugout 
He's expected to win every domestic competition that his team is involved in, not least the Singed Premiership, and do well in Europe each season. Missing out on a place in the Europa League group stages on Thursday night will be a bitter disappointment, not to mention a costly failure financially, and it will not go down well. It is to be hoped that Celtic, who are leading AZ Dagmar 2-0 from the first leg, prevail over in the Netherlands and progress for the good of the Scottish game. Yet, Postele Coglu has, just a couple of months or so into his tenure, already enjoyed some significant successes. Lifting the mood around the east end of Glasgow, which was at rock bottom after the calamitous attempt to complete 10 in a row and trophyless 2020-21 campaign, in a matter of weeks, has been some going. Those supporters who staged angry protests outside the stadium, called for the manager and board to be sacked, got involved in ugly skirmishes with police, hurled missiles at players and attacked the team bus last term, have showered the Greek-Australian and his charges with adulation and praise. The football Celtic have served up during their six-game winning run has been a delight to watch at times. They have scored 24 goals and could easily have netted more. New signings Lee Labada, Kyoga Furuhashi and Joe Hart have all contributed greatly to the resurgence. Meanwhile, Ryan Christie and Tom Rogic, who had lost their way, have been revitalised. And Anthony Ralston has grasped the chance he was only handed due to the lack of alternatives in the right-back position, and then some. Postley Coglu has shown he has an eye for a player in the transfer market, wants his side to attack and entertain, and can inspire and improve those who work under him. It is little wonder that Celtic fans are currently counting the hours until the first Old Firm match of the season kicks off at Ibrox at noon on Sunday, even though none of them will due to a standoff between the hierarchies at the city rivals over ticket allocations, be in attendance. Rangers have been as unconvincing as their age-old adversaries have been convincing in recent weeks. Individuals who were immense last season, as Stephen Gerrard's men romped their first top-flight title in 10 years by a 25-point margin, have disappointed. Leon Balogun, Borna Barisic, Conor Goldson, Ryan Kent and James Tavernier have all been far from their best. New arrival John Lundstrom has been poor. Ross County were beaten 4-2 up in Dingwall yesterday, but their showings in the home and away defeats to Malmo in the Champions League qualifying, Premiership loss to Dundee United to Tannadice, and even the narrow Europa League playoff win over Alakert have concerned their followers and manager. Are the champions heading for a humiliating home defeat in the opening Glasgow derby of the season? Is the balance of power in Scottish football going to shift quickly from Govan to Parkhead? A sense of perspective is required here. Celtic have played just once away during the current hot streak of form. They beat Jabonek, who finished third in the Czech First League last term, 4-2 earlier this month. Well, Angeball, as a high-risk, expansive, swashbuckling style has been dubbed, work against quality opposition and top-class strikers on the road. We will find out this week when they play AZ and Rangers. Callum McGregor and his teammates have kept clean sheets against Dundee, Yabonek, Hearts, AZ and St Mirren in recent weeks. 
but the defence has looked shaky at times. Carol Starfelt is still to show why it took a £4.3 million fee to secure his services. Hart has been required to come to the rescue on several occasions. Yelpinich has three guilt-edged scoring opportunities. AZ even more, and Hart's nitty twice in the second half. In that latter outing, Postoli Coglu felt his men had tired during the high tempo they had, as instructed, played at. The new recruits will help Celtic maintain their intensity for the full 90 minutes. However, what sort of shape will Abada, Furuhashi and Rogic be in at Sunday lunchtime after what promises to a, a mentally and physically draining for an excursion on Thursday night? Postelokogia has been un- unconcerned by their issues at the back. He appreciates the no regard as a work in progress. He also accepts that his tactics will leave his men exposed on an occasion. He's the kind of coach who's quite happy for his side to concede a goal, just as long as they score two. But how will they fare in front of a hostile 45,000 strong crowd if Gerard, as he did in the 4 1 win at Ibrox back in May, feels Alfredo Morelos and Kemar Roof up front in a 4 3 1 2 formation? Celtic could quite easily triumph comfortably against hosts who have toiled of late and have an energy-sapping continental fixture in Armenia to negotiate on Thursday themselves. But it will be interesting, seeing how effective Angebot is and what will be their biggest test to date. And that article was by Chief Football Writer Matthew Lindsay. From the Herald Scotland dated Monday 23rd August 2021, from the Voices section. Don't buy the doom. We can still alter this climate pulse. An article by Vicky Allen, Senior Features Writer. It's been a summer of doom, a swathe of unprecedented events. Smoke from Siberian fires reaching the North Pole. Record temperatures. Rain for the first time on record, falling on the peak of the Greenland ice cap. Combined with the latest IPCC report, a code read for humanity, could, if you stick to just the headlines, lead you to believe that it's all over already. But it's not. Often I think each and every headline around climate change should end with the line, but our actions can stop the worst of this crisis. And of course, some of them do. Alarmism is one thing. We need plenty of alarms sounding, including the blare of protest that Extinction Rebellion is set to bring over these coming weeks. But doomism is the thing that bothers me. Reading too many climate stories of a doomist type and you can find yourself struck by vertigo, paralysed. The fight for our minds in terms of climate is no longer between those that state that this current climate change is chiefly human-caused and those that deny this. Instead, it's around those that would have us give up because it's all too late or insurmountable and those that say it is possible to avoid the worst of this crisis, even if already we are seeing its impact around the globe. Doomism, as the climate scientist Michael Mann has described, has replaced denialism as a root of our inaction. It creates a kind of inertia, a helplessness, 
and alongside it what man calls inactivism. I often think a big question right now is what messages will make us act, and with the speed and urgency required. What above all will create serious government and systemic action, but also make us act as individuals, voters, workers, consumers? The balance is a tricky one, since we also can't afford to make it sound easy. A distinctly non-doomish report was published by the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change recently. A headline in the Times declared, breezily, only small cuts in flying and driving needed to beat climate change, says Blair Institute. The article told us we can also continue eating meat and dairy. What bothered me on reading the article was that such lines make it seem as if we need actually do little, other than cut back on the flying and driving a little, while we wait for the ground source or electric heating to be installed. But of course that was not the overall message of the report, whose title is Planes, Homes and Automobiles, the role of behaviour change in delivering net zero and whose aim is essentially to explore how government might enlist the public in behaviour change. It notes how UK government analysis shows that between 2009 to 2019, 87% of emission reductions were delivered through measures requiring no behaviour change, but that from 2020 to 2035, our emission savings from behaviour change either pure behaviour change or via deployment and use of new technologies, rises from 13% to 59%. Behaviour change, the report essentially says, is going to be necessary, but it's not going to require total transformation of our lives. In fact, we can merrily keep on flying, since it notes we need to reduce average kilometres travelled per person by plane by a maximum of around 6% between 2019 and 2035. That kind of comment is worrying in a report that is all about how we inspire behavioural change. Since it seems to suggest change is so little, many of us might not even bother to do it, or push for policies that were created. It's particularly worrying given the current UK aviation strategy involves increasing aviation emissions into the 2030s, whilst carbon offsetting. Much as we don't want the kind of doomist narrative that says necessary change is too big and impossible to achieve, we can't afford to make it seem like a tinkering around the edges. We are a long way off creating a proper path towards net zero, but a path is possible. There's a line to be found between the doom that causes inertia and the positivity which can also cause inaction. That is where action happens. We need to galvanise around it. This article was by Vicky Allen, Senior Features Writer. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 23rd of August 2021. Arts and Entertainments. A nostalgic hankering for the yellow pages and the analogue days. By Susan Swarbrick, columnist and senior features writer. What a week. My descent into madness started on Monday when I was closing the garden gate and happened to glance across the road at the bus stop. It had been graffitied. 
This was not the work of Banksy, the acclaimed street artist who in recent weeks has been on a whistle-stop tour of British seaside resorts, leaving a raft of eye-catching works in his wake. Rather, it was the numbers 55 spray-painted alongside what I think was meant to be a football trophy, but looked more like a male appendage, or the phallic-shaped rocket ship that Jeff Bezos used to blast off into space. I'm hoping that the council will be along any day now to remove it, but in the meantime, my search history in Google is a long screed of how do you remove spray-painted graffiti, like a panicked teen in a slapstick comedy who threw a raging house party while her parents were away. This in turn fondly brought to mind the Yellow Pages advert from the early 1990s, where a hungover chap has to hastily seek out a French polisher to fix a nasty scratch on a living room table after a wild soiree at the family home. Which then got me thinking about how I hadn't seen a Yellow Pages for years and how these days J.R. Hartley would probably get his grandchildren to order his out-of-print fly-fishing book from the internet rather than calling round umpteen shops. I suddenly felt old, ancient, and down the rabbit hole I tumbled. I did feel briefly better on Tuesday when I was doing an interview with a comedy double act and reminded them that they'd been pals for 30 years. Not 30 years, said one half of the duo. Then he did the mental arithmetic, and like me, is probably now having an existential crisis about the galloping decades. A friend's son talked excitedly about starting university, served as a potent reminder that it is more than quarter of a century since I headed off to begin my own studies. I spent the summer beforehand working in a greasy spoon transport cafe near Broxburn, frying square sausage and buttering rolls. We had the radio on all day, it was 1995, which means that the past week marks exactly 26 years since the Battle of Britpop, Blur vs Oasis, was in full swing, Country House vs Roll With It, which at the time naively felt like the equivalent of the Rolling Stones vs The Beatles. I was fervently Team Oasis and spent my hard-earned cafe cash on their single, in the end though it was Blur that topped the charts. Such was my emotional investment in this daft dogfight that the disappointment felt crushing. I've listened to both songs in recent days and truth be told, neither is anything special. Humdrum at best, certainly no Beetlebum or Champagne Supernova. So that's been my week. Coming soon, my weary ode to analogue continues. Their columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. By Susan Swarbrick. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday, 23rd of August 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Betty was among Georges Simenon's greatest works. Barry Didcock on the Belgian writer's non Maigre novels. By Barry Didcock, Senior Features Writer. It was in 1929, while living in a canal boat in Paris, that journalist and short story writer Georges Simenon had the Eureka moment which would help put him on into the pantheon of crime fiction greats. It was a sunny morning and the 26-year-old Belgian was enjoying a pick-me-up in the local cafe. I'd had one, two, maybe three small schnapps, laced with a dash of bitters, he later recalled. In any case, an hour later, slightly sleepy, I began to imagine a large, powerfully built gentleman I thought would make a passable inspector. As the day wore on, I added various accessories, a pipe, a bowler hat, a thick overcoat with a velvet collar, and since it was cold and damp in my abandoned barge, I put a cast iron stove in his office. Fans of Inspector Jules Maigret will recognise that description of the character Simonon's schnapps-inspired mirage turned into. He made his literary bow in 1931 in a novel titled Peter the Latvian. Brackets, as did his stove, it's mentioned in the first sentence. 
close brackets. And over the next four decades, Seamanen published 75 novels and 28 short stories featuring the hard-nosed Parisian detective. The series ended with Maigret and Monsieur Charles in 1972. For that achievement alone, Seamanen is worthy of respect, but the Maigret novels aren't the whole story. In fact, they are only part of a much wider portfolio of work which stretches to around 150 novellas and 200 novels in Seamanen's own name, plus dozens more under various pseudonyms, and it's here that you find the Belgian's best work. In 2014, Penguin embarked on an ambitious programme to publish virtually all of Seamanen's novels in new translations, including his non-Maigret work. The Mahé Circle, which had never been translated into English, was one of the earliest to see the light of day. The series is ongoing, and in the autumn, Penguin will publish The Strangers in the House, written in 1940. It's the story of a drunken recluse in a rambling mansion who hears a gunshot one night, finds a body in a second-floor bedroom, and has to decide what part in the death his estranged teenage daughter may have played. That will be followed early next year by The People Opposite, set in the Black Sea. Ahead of that, however, comes Betty. First published in 1961, it's rare among Seamanen's oeuvre for having two female protagonists. Betty, a young woman who we first meet at the end of a three-day bender, having dinner with a drug-addicted GP she's picked up in a bar somewhere, and Laura, older, wiser, wealthier, brackets, she's widowed, close brackets, and more sophisticated. She's the lover of roguish adventurer Mario, owner of Latrou, the restaurant in which the novel opens. Laura takes Betty under her wing and installs her in the room next to hers in the plush Versailles Hotel, which is her home from home. There, Betty lies in bed and smokes, drinks and reflects on the events, which have caused her to walk out on her husband and children. Boo's addled and serially unfaithful, she's a difficult character to like, but the agency Seamanen gives her and the non-judgmental way he pushes her through the story makes her irresistible too, even at the moment of betrayal which ends the novel. Among the best of the rest of the non-Maigre novels, or romance doers as they are known, are 1942's The Widow, which explores the same themes as Albert Camus' The Stranger, brackets, it was published in the same year, and much to Seamanen's chagrin, drew more acclaim, close brackets. Three Bedrooms in Manhattan from 1946, and Dirty Snow published in 1948, and thought by many to be Seamanen's masterpiece. It follows the short, brutal life of amoral 18-year-old Frank Friedmayer, a pimp and hustler in an unnamed city under occupation, who kills a man for the hell of it as the novel opens and then wanders emotionless through a series of encounters with black marketeers, sex workers and various acquaintances, brackets, he has no friends, close brackets, in the late-night bars he frequents. Comparing it to the work of noir great Raymond Chandler, American author William Volman writes... Chandler's novels are noir shot through with wistful luminescence. Seamanen has concentrated noir into a darkness as solid and heavy as the interior of a door star. Come out the other side of dirty snow and it's hard to argue with that description. Three Bedrooms in Manhattan, meanwhile, details the frantic couplings and late-night neon and rain-drenched wanderings of an exiled French actor and the young divorced mother he meets in a diner. Analysing its mood and construction, American novelist Joyce Carol Oates finds it typical of Seamanen's non-Maigre work, a sequence of cinematic confrontations in which an individual, male, middle-aged, unwittingly trapped in his life, is catapulted into an extraordinary adventure that will leave him transformed and less destroyed.
Among the artistic fellow travellers she cites are Camus, Marguerite Duras, radical experimentalist Alain Rob Grier, and the filmmakers Jean-Luc Godard and Alain René, in particular their films Abu de Soufflé and Hiroshima Mon Amour, brackets which had a screenplay by Duras. Close brackets. In fact, the love-in between Simonon and cinema is worth a novel in its own right. Wikipedia lists 46 big-screen adaptations of his work. Betty was filmed by New Wave great Claude Chabrol in 1992. The Strangers in the House has had four big-screen adaptations 50 years apart. Brackets James Mason, Geraldine Chaplin, Bobby Darin and Jean-Paul Belmondo all featured in one or other of them. Close brackets. And in 2007, Hungarian auteur Bella Tarr cast Tilda Swinton in a moody black and white version of 1934's The Man from London. Among the others are 1971's The Widow, starring Alain Delon and the great Simon Signore, and a 1965 version of Three Bedrooms in Manhattan by French cinematic great Marcel Carney. It features an uncredited appearance by a then unknown American actor named Robert De Niro. So if your sense of the Maigre creator has been too coloured by cosy TV adaptations of his work, or worse, you've conflated him with Agatha Christie's pompous Belgian sleuth Hercule Poirot, then think again. When it comes to lifting up life's stone, looking underneath and describing what he sees in economical prose and with a keen eye for every type of human frailty and depravity, there's nobody like George Simenon. Betty, Three Bedrooms in Manhattan and The Man from London are out now. The Strangers in the House is published in November 4 and The People Opposite on February 22. Brackets, all Penguin classics, all £8.99. Close brackets. By Barry Didcock. The Herald Business Section, Monday the 23rd of August 2021. Lawyer to Head Scottish Cinema's Development by Brian Donnelly. Lawyer Alistair Morrison has been appointed chairman of the board of the Centre for the Moving Image, the parent organisation of Edinburgh International Film Festival, Film House, Edinburgh and Belmont Film House. Aberdeen said, Mr Morrison brings significant experience in strategy development and organisational growth and is currently partner and head of client strategy at Pinset Masons. He is said to be highly influential and known industry-wide for his approach to innovation and his ability to challenge and mobilise others to think differently. In 2019, he was recognised by the Financial Times Innovative Lawyer Awards Europe as the most innovative lawyer in Europe. Mr Morrison is also a frequent speaker on sustainability and what the legal industry can do to be more active in the climate change agenda. He recently called on the legal industry to unite to pledge a million hours to help prevent climate change and reduce biodiversity loss. Mr Morrison said, I am delighted to have been offered this opportunity to chair CMI at such an exciting and important stage of its development. I look forward to working with the CEO Ken Hay, the rest of the CMI team and my fellow trustees over the coming years to realise the undoubted potential of CMI and its contribution to Scotland. Athol Duncan, chair of the appointment panel, said the board enthusiastically welcomes Alistair Morrison as its new chair. Alistair brings a wealth of experience to the CMI and its work. We are very much looking forward to him joining us. The Centre for the Moving Image is a company limited by guarantee with charitable status. This article was written by Brian Donnelly. The Herald Business Section, Friday the 20th of August 2021. 
Morrison's accepts seven billion pound offer as takeover battle rages on. Bascott writes, the battle for Morrison's took a fresh twist last night when a seven billion pound bid was tabled for the supermarket giant. U.S. private equity firm Clayton Dublier and Rice was kicked off the bidding war with a 5.5 billion pound approach in June, has now tabled a seven billion pound bid. It sent shares in Morrison's up a further 4.3% to 291.2p by 10am this morning. The latest approach from CDNR comes around nearly two weeks after the Morrison's board agreed to an improved to takeover offer from a US consortium led by Fortress Investment Group, valuing the supermarket chain at £6.7 billion. That offer from Fortress followed an initial approach it had made that valued Morrison's at £6.3 billion. But the late intervention from CDNR means the company has withdrawn its recommendation that investors back the Fortress deal. CDNR had last week been given an extended deadline until Friday afternoon by takeover regulators to either say whether it wants to make a new offer for Morrison's or to walk away. In the updated offer document released at 9pm on Thursday night, the company said it recognises the legacy of Sir Ken Morrison, Morrison's history and culture, and considers that this strong heritage is core to Morrison's and its approach to grocery retailing. The private equity house, which will face less scrutiny than a stock market listed business, said it will support Morrison's in further building on these strengths and suggested it had no plans to sell off its freehold shares. Most supermarkets leased their sites, but Morrison's had resisted calls for several years to use sale and leaseback agreements to line the pockets of investors. It thought CDNR could be planning a similar move. In an attempt to allay those fears, CDNR said Morrison's strengths include its freehold property portfolio, which afford greater flexibility and operational control as well as its vertical integration, which enables it to compete successfully on price and guarantee the quality of its products in partnership with local suppliers and farmers. It stopped short of saying the freeholds would not be sold. New York-based firm CDNR is one of the most firmly established investors in the sector and has been advised by former Tesco chief Sir Terry Lee over the past 10 years. CDNR is also the owner of four-court giant Motor Fuel Group, sparking initial speculation that it could strike a similar deal to the acquisition of ASDA by EG Group founders, the ISA brothers, and private equity backers TDR Capital. Morrison's announced that it will hold a shareholder meeting to vote on the Fortress-led takeover offer on August 27th. It added this deadline will cease to apply if, before that time, a third party other than CDNR has announced a firm intention to make an offer from Morrison's. Each of Morrison's, Oppidum, the Fortress Consortium, and CDNR has accepted this ruling. This article was written by Scott Wright. The Herald Business Section Thursday the 19th of August 2021 New Jobs Following Orkney Hotel Upgrade by Christy Dorsey an upmarket island hotel overlooking the historic Highland Park distillery has doubled its capacity in a move that is expected to create new jobs in the local area. The family-run Linfield Hotel in Orkney has completed a 10-room extension following a £400,000 funding package from Royal Bank of Scotland. 
The investment will ensure that the hotel is prepared for the upcoming staycation season as travel restrictions lift, creating up to five new jobs with additional reception, cleaning and service staff required to support increased guest numbers. Purchased in 2006 by Malcolm Stout and his partner Lorna Reed, who previously ran the Cleeton House Hotel in Westray, the extension of the Linfield on the outskirts of Kirkwall was completed during its closure in line with the local lockdown restrictions. Its highly regarded restaurant, which focuses on dishes crafted with local produce, including seaweed-fed mutton, allowed the business to continue operating through the 2020 and to retain all staff. Despite a challenging year, it's great to finally welcome guests back to the hotel and to reveal our new rooms to the world, Mr Stout said. Thanks to the support from the Royal Bank of Scotland, we were able to complete the majority of building work during the hotel's downtime, working with talented local contractors. This article was written by Kirsty Dorsey. The Herald Business Section, Thursday the 19th of August 2021. North Sea player makes pragmatic call to quit licenses by Scott Wright. Jersey Oil and Gas has exited two licenses in the central North Sea, citing the decision as pragmatic and cost-effective after evaluating the prospects and talks with the Oil and Gas Authority. The company announced to the stock market that it decided not to progress the next license phase on Zermatt and Glen which would have required committing to firm wells in each of the two license areas. The licenses will now automatically cease on August 29th. The move by Jersey comes after the company announced in March that its plans for the Greater Buchan Area development, which it intends to execute in three phases, would not include Zermatt and Glen. It flagged the current sub-commercial status of Glen while noting the decision to not include Zermatt had come after taking into account the higher ranked drill-ready portfolio of exploration of opportunities offered by its Verbier license. Verbier forms part of Jersey's £1 billion project to develop a major production hub on the GBA. Andrew Bennett, chief executive of Jersey, said, JOG's management has taken the pragmatic and cost-effective decision not to proceed with the firm well commitments for the non-core Glen and Zermatt licenses in the context of cost-effective and targeted capital allocation. JOG fully respects the OGA's asset stewardship expectations which govern the delivery of exploration and appraisal work programs. And we continue to work closely with the OGA as we progress our plans for the company's core GBA development project. Shares closed up 2.5p or 2% at 124p. This article was written by Scott Wright.
Recorded from the Herald on the 24th of August, 2021. 
from the sports section. Rangers vs Celtic, Old Firm Crowd Fears Allied by Nicola Sturgeon, by James Kearney. Rangers will still be allowed a full house at Ibrox this Sunday for the first Old Firm Derby of the season, despite rumours circulating online that the stadium's capacity would be reduced as coronavirus cases rise throughout the country. No supporters were allowed into the grounds last term as the world wrestled with the COVID pandemic, but attendances have been steadily increasing as restrictions have eased this season. After getting permission for 23,000 fans to attend their Premiership curtain raiser with Livingston last month, Rangers have since welcomed back a capacity crowd to Ibrox for their Premier Sports Cup last 16 tie with Dunfermline. There were fears that stadium restrictions could be reintroduced after the government announced a coronavirus briefing update from Nicola Sturgeon on Tuesday afternoon, and although the First Minister warned that the nation is currently in a fragile situation, she revealed that the current rules will remain in place for the time being. What happens in the next few weeks will depend to some extent, to a large extent, on all of us, she explained. This is another fragile and potentially very pivotal moment in our journey through this pandemic. Even though most restrictions have been lifted, the virus is still circulating and we know the Delta variant is highly transmissible. Under the current guidelines, clubs are still required to apply for permission for full stadia from the relevant local authority and the decision is taken out of Holyrood's hands. That article was by James Kearney. From the Herald Scotland, dated Tuesday 24th August 2021, from the Voices section. Unpicking the pensions triple lock. Who's to say what's fair? An article by Kirsty Dorsey, business correspondent. It's all a matter of fairness, the Chancellor has said. But the question is, who determines what is equitable and how that conclusion is reached? The point under scrutiny is the debate surrounding the triple lock on state pensions, which the UK government has suggested could be unhinged to avoid a record increase in payouts come next year. The implication is that, like the Covid restrictions that extracted the heaviest toll on the young to protect a predominantly older population that is most susceptible to the virus, one generation is again footing the bill for another that is already to a large degree financially secure. To recap, the triple lock was introduced in 2010 by the Tory Lib Dem coalition government and remained a pledge in the Conservatives' last manifesto prior to the 2019 election. It guarantees that state pension payments will increase each year by either 2.5%, the rate of inflation or the increase in average earnings, whichever is highest. The aim is to guarantee that the value of pension payments is not eroded by the increased cost of living, as happened throughout much of the three decades from 1980 onwards. By 2010, the basic state pension amounted to just 16.3% of average earnings. That has improved since the introduction of the triple lock five years ago. But the basic pension still stands at a meagre 19% of earnings while the new state pension introduced in 2016 is worth 24.8% of the average. The prospect of a record-busting rise brought on by the aberrations of the pandemic is no doubt welcome among those who depend on this income. Job losses during the pandemic have been highest among lower-paid occupations, 
decreasing their waiting on average earnings. Meanwhile, the return of higher paid professionals from furlough, where they were paid 80% of their wages, to full-time work has further contributed to what has been described as an artificially high increase in earnings. Current figures from the Office for National Statistics, the ONS, show that excluding bonuses, annual UK earnings were up by 7.4% in June. Based on that, economic forecasters at the Office for Budget Responsibility, the OBR, predicted in July that pensioners could see their payments rise by as much as 8% from April next year. The OBR says this could cost an extra £3 billion annually, which has raised considerable disquiet over public finances, already stretched to the limit by the Covid crisis. Speaking last month in an interview with BBC Breakfast, Rishi Sunak dropped strong hints that such a steep increase will not go ahead. Asked about the possibility of this happening while universal credit uplifts are withdrawn from the poorest, the Chancellor said he very much recognised people's concerns. What I would say is the numbers that you mention at this point are speculation, because we haven't actually got them yet, he said. That happens later on, but I do recognise people's concerns on this. I think they are completely legitimate and fair concerns to raise. And what I would say is that when we look at this properly at the appropriate time, fairness will absolutely be driving what we do. And we want to make sure that the decisions we make and systems we have are fair both for pensioners and for taxpayers. Left to ponder how this might translate into the reality on the ground, some have speculated there could be a one-year suspension of the earnings inflation element of the equation, or that distorted data from the pandemic could somehow be stripped out to create a more realistic measure of underlying earnings growth. A further suggestion has been to base the pension increase on a two-year average of the growth in either wages or inflation which would roughly halve the amount received under the triple lock. Such solutions would naturally sound reasonable to younger workers whose employment prospects have been hit very hard by the pandemic and who pay for state pensions through their national insurance contributions. With persistent doubts over whether the system will still be there when they reach retirement, today's triple lock looks like a mandatory investment with few returns. Yet the fact remains that at less than a quarter of average earnings, the UK pays one of the worst state pensions anywhere in the developed world. The full new state pension for those who reach retirement after April 2016 is worth £179.60 a week, while the basic state pension for older retirees is worth £137.60. And though some pensioners are on very good incomes, millions are not. While it is widely assumed that retirees live in homes they have already paid for, figures from the ONS show that nearly one in five, 17%, are in fact renters. More than half of them, 58%, have annual housing costs of £6,000 or more, which amounts to nearly two-thirds of the yearly income of some £9,360 from the new state pension. An increase in the region of 8% would add an extra £14 or so to the weekly new state pension, taking the total to approximately £194. 
This might not sound much to the more fortunate, but for those who depend mostly or solely on a state pension, the majority of whom are women, because they tend to have less private pension income, such sums can be crucial. This is yet another facet in the wrangle over intergenerational fairness that has become an increasingly common topic of discussion, with young people focused on job and housing insecurity, while their elders fret about social care systems that are increasingly unfit for purpose. Challenges to living standards affect different generations in different ways. The evolution of technology, changing economic circumstances, and the vagaries of war or pandemics ensure that no two age groups will encounter the same hardships. Yet no one would advocate rationing for today's children as a way of levelling the playing field with those who grew up during the Second World War. Nor are we likely to see any push for those who received university grants in decades past to return them in consideration to those who now rack up loans to fund their education. The triple lock debate risks fanning the flames of a cross-generational battle that benefits no one, particularly considering the likelihood that state pensions will become increasingly important as access to good company pensions continues to diminish. None of it is fair on anyone, and solutions won't be found amid a barrage of finger pointing. This article is by Christy Dorsey, Business Correspondent. This article is from The Herald, date 24th August 2021, from the Arts section. Sex Pistol John Lydon Loses Court Case Over Danny Boyle Punk Drama by Barry Didcook. Former Sex Pistols frontman John Lydon has lost a court battle with his former bandmates over the use of the punk legend's music in an upcoming TV drama. So what is it all about? Oscar-winning director Danny Boyle, he of Trainspotting and Slumdog Millionaire fame, is making a six-part series about the iconic punk band who blazed brightly but briefly in the mid-1970s and gave us classics such as Pretty Vacant, God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the UK. The drama began filming in March for Disney's FX channel and is to be called Pistol. Unsurprisingly, Boyle wants to use the band's songs extensively. Who wouldn't? However, Lydon has taken issue with the plan and has been trying to have Boyle's use of the songs blocked. In retaliation, Lydon's surviving former bandmates Paul Cook and Steve Jones, respectively the band's drummer and guitarist, sued him. They argue that majority rule should adhere in all matters to do with the back catalogue, which would give Boyle the thumbs up and the keys to the Pistols' musical archive. Lydon counter-argues that in previous years a single veto had been enough to nix a project such as this. So who's right? That's a big question. But from the point of view of presiding judge Sir Anthony Mann, who yesterday handed down judgment at the High Court in London, the Band Member Agreement, or BMA, which allows for a majority decision, is valid, and therefore Lydon's veto can be overruled. Approval has already been given by Glenn Matlock, another former member, 
and by the estate of Matlock's replacement, Sid Vicious, who died of a heroin overdose in 1979 while on bail for suspected murder. A great rock and roll swindle? Lydon thinks so. Ahead of the hearing, he referred to the BMA as a total trap or prison and likened it to slave labour. He has also taken issue with his portrayal in the upcoming drama, which is based on Jones's memoir. During the trial, meanwhile, he told the court, I don't understand how Steve and Paul think they have the right to insist that I do something that I so morally, heart and soul disagree with. And his former bandmates? In a joint statement issued yesterday, Jones and Cook said, We welcome the court's ruling in this case. It brings clarity to our decision-making and upholds the band members' agreement on collective decision-making. It has not been a pleasant experience, but we believe it was necessary to allow us to move forward and hopefully work together in the future with better relations. It doesn't sound very punk. It does not, though arguably the band lost their right to cock a snoot at the establishment when they licensed a Sex Pistols scent in 2010. Resisting tradition, fighting conformity and disregarding aromatic conventions, it leaves a fresh, restless bite of lemon sharpened and intensified by a defiant black pepper, went the blurb. The fragrance exudes pure energy pared down and pumped up by leather shot through with heliotrope and brought back down to earth by a raunchy patchouli. That article was by Barry Didcook. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.